0: Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. I've done hundreds of them now, and if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, go to batgap.com and look under the past interviews menu. This program is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers, so if you appreciate it and feel like supporting it to any degree, there are PayPal buttons on every page of the site. My guest today is an old friend of mine named Dean Slider. Uh, I know Dean from, he and I became teachers of Transcendental Meditation on the same course in Essis Park, Colorado in the fall of 1970. And um, we have done different things over the years since then, and, and Dean has been teaching natural methods of meditation, not necessarily TM. Uh, since then, uh, he's written a number of highly acclaimed books, um, including one called Natural Meditation, which was an Amazon number one stress, stress management bestseller, and a number of other books. We'll be talking about one of them today called Fearless. Dean has uh, done a bunch of stuff. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> Let me uh, start by asking you... I heard you say in an interview with uh, Dancer Monday and Phil Goldberg on Spirit Matters Talk that you kind of left the TM movement because you got uncomfortable with how pri- high the prices had become.
1: Is that the main thing? Yeah, there was that. That, that was the, finally the thing that uh, kind of forced me out of the mess, which turned out to be a great thing. I mean, kind of my career over the years, as you said, doing a bunch of stuff uh, is, has been to gradually discover that any nest I start getting too comfortable in one way or another, I'm, I'm going to get kicked out. Uh, but, you know, when you and I started uh, TM back in the late 60s, uh, you know, 35 bucks and we were going to to uh, save the world uh, by making natural, effortless, scientific meditation available to everyone... And you know what? That's still my mission. <laughs> that's still, you know, when Maharishi said that, I said, yeah, that's what I want to do. At the time, you know, at that time, I, I was a hippie in Haight-Ashbury and, and, uh, and thinking that, oh, well, in order to bring enlightenment to the masses, we were going to have to, you know, I knew people who were actually plotting to get a haircut get a job in the White House in the kitchen and drop acid in Lyndon Johnson's coffee <laughs> with the idea that he and Ho Chi Minh would be dancing hand in hand with roses in their teeth in Golden Gate Park. And that's how we were going to end the war and, and you know, bring about an age of enlightenment. And when I heard Marishi talk about meditation in such simple, straightforward terms, I thought, yeah, this is stuff I can bring back to the suburbs. This is stuff I can bring home to mom and dad. You know, it's like the girl you can bring home to your parents. Uh, and, um, and so I was able to very comfortably teach TM for you know, many years, a couple of decades that way. But then Ishii and the TM program started going into some funny directions. Uh, you know, he started appointing people kings and <laughs> printing his own currency. And I mean, you know, all that history and uh at that time i was my day job was teaching english at a very fine prep school in new jersey and you know where i had was teaching the governor's kids kids from the families that ran major corporations there it it, it was great and i also ran meditation programs in the school and the meditation component was tm and at that time the the fee, I think, was 85 bucks. Great. And then one summer, some... Those people could afford yeah, it. Yeah, right. And if, and if kids couldn't afford it, you know, we quietly gave them a scholarship. Summer of 1993, uh, well, I was actually back in California with my mom who was dying of cancer. And so that was right there. That was a little bit of a, you know, the death of people close to you has a very clarifying influence on your your perspective. And... Uh, you start to realize that you know if you're hanging around in some place that's not 100% really you, maybe you want to reconsider that. And and then I got uh, when I came home to New Jersey, my wife told me that uh, while I was go- while you were out, Dean, <laughs> the, the TM movement got in touch and said instead of charging the kids eighty five dollars, you have to charge them twenty five hundred dollars. And so. Um, that forced me to move on and it was great because you know the brilliance of Maharishi's teaching as you know was effortlessness of meditation of letting the letting life letting existence pull us into its own nature rather than us trying to push things and what i was forced to discover was that Maharishi did not have a monopoly on effortlessness So I hung out with teachers in Tibetan tradition, the teachers in the Vaito tradition, and found out that, you know, sometimes you have to dig a little, you have to listen a little closely, that that teaching of effortlessness, that teaching of meditation is just being rather than doing. It's there.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I remember in my case, it was the summer of 86. I think it was summer. I was in India sitting in this kind of garden with Maharishi and a couple hundred people, And it was like two or three in the morning, and they were going on and on and on, Marishi, talking to these doctors about how much they could get away with charging for a bottle of Amrit Kalash, which was like this Ayurvedic thing. And this German guy leaned over to me, a little bit disgusted, and said, here we are in the land of the Veda, in the hour of ghosts, talking about money. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it was beginning to get through my thick skull at that point, too, that something... But I don't want to... spend time criticizing the tm movement they can do what they can do but let's talk about the principle of effortlessness because i think that it's not necessarily an automatic assumption in many people's minds that meditation is going to be effortless and um, they may have tried things that weren't very effortless and i've interviewed people such as adyashanti and a bunch of people who um shenzhen young who 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 went through really arduous practice brought them to the edge of tears if not past the edge of tears because it was so difficult and um so let's talk about sort of effortless versus difficult meditation and whether there's a legitimate place for both in spiritual practice or whether perhaps Difficult meditation is some kind of a misunderstanding or misinterpretation of what was originally intended by ancient
1: teachers such as the Buddha. When you finally get down to it, all you can talk about is your own experience. And my experience is I tried effort and it it didn't work. I tried effortlessness, or actually, I don't want to say tried effortlessness, I stopped trying, let effortlessness take over, and that works. And really, where you learn stuff is by teaching. And I've been so fortunate that I've gotten to teach these kids at fancy prep school, and I would go up I-78 to Northern State Prison in Newark, which is the the roughest maximum security prison in Newark, where I have a group that I still supervise. It's been going on since 2005. Teach them the same stuff, and they, they get it. These days, I do a lot of workshops around the country. And, and I hate that word workshop because it has work in it. Work right. it, yeah. Uh, it should really be play something, playground. And uh, I get so many people who they've, you know, they're so sincere in their quest for awakening. Uh, and they, they come in. Some of them have been meditating for years. And we do a 15-minute meditation. And, you know, you do this for a while. You, you, you get pretty clear on there's some you know little subtle tricks for pulling the rug out from under people's habits of of effort and they just some of them come to me with they come with tears in their eyes but it's just oh i had no idea it could be so simple yeah
0: i think that perhaps one of the reasons that effort was crept into the whole notion of meditation uh if it wasn't originally intended is that a description was taken as a prescription, and what I mean by that is, you know if you describe the state of Samadhi where the, you know the mind is completely settled and there are no thoughts and it's just pure bliss and, and so on and so forth, and then you try to prescribe the elimination of thoughts as a practice so as to arrive at that state, you're necessarily going to be setting up a, a difficult situation you know because you, you can't just stop thinking
1: no you, no you can't and and you don't have to you know when the buddha attained awakening after his his you know many days under the the bodhi tree uh, you know what's recorded what it says in the sutras what he said was not how wonderful how wonderful i finally got rid of all those thoughts hey <laughs> he said how wonderful how wonderful everything's cool just the way it is you know which to me includes Thoughts are there, the world is there, everything is there. None of that, you know, the nature of awakening is to be clear that that the persistence of thoughts, the persistence of the, the apparent physical world, none of that contradicts the, the boundless okayness of, of samadhi. It all, everything plays nice with everything else. Let's talk about why the mind keeps thinking even
0: if you don't want it to Mm -hmm. and um, why and why it is and and the principle of effortlessness like what are the deeper mechanics of why or how
1: meditation could be effortless well the the model that I like to use is you know when people say okay now I'm going to meditate I need my mind to be quiet Uh, we can liken that to the surface of an ocean and it's like okay I'm seeing all this choppiness I'm seeing all these waves I, I want the water to be silent, so I give me something. Give me, a, give me a big oar or something. Wham, 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 wham. I'm going to flatten out all the waves. <laughs> and of course, all you do is you churn up the water more. Because, and to me, this right here, this is the E equals MC squared of meditation technique. Any effort to create a non-agitated state of mind is itself a form of agitation. Yeah, you're introducing some something that wasn't even there yeah. before. Yeah. So so yeah. this is why, you know, so many people so sincere in their aspiration, they just wind up chasing their tails and, and trying to meditate. And I think what happens in a lot of cases, and this goes back to your earlier question of how you know concentration and effort have become for a lot of people uh, understood or misunderstood to be the tradition, to be the teaching. I think what happens is you know, people who really have strong motivation, they'll sit there and they'll meditate for an hour. They'll meditate for two hours, just you know, trying hard to concentrate. And what finally happens is the mind becomes so exhausted that that it, you stop concentrating, and finally it slips, and you you settle back into yourself. And then you go, ah, there it is, Ananda. There it is, samadhi. Boy, it took two hours of sweat, but it was worth it. <laughs> yeah, I remember
0: Adya saying that it, um, his first really big shift happened after he had actually been an ardent practitioner for some years, you know, really giving it his all, but in an effortful way. And finally he just had this moment where, he, I forget his exact
1: words, were something like, I can't do this anymore. Right. And he kind of gave up, and then boom, he just That's slipped it. in. That's it. And, and yeah. what you and I were so... What made us so fortunate was that early on in our careers, we had a teacher who very clearly showed us a way—not the way, but a way—to just skip that first hour and go straight to the last ten minutes where you where you slip, where you give up. And uh, so, you know, I'll do things like, for example, if I'm when I'm leading a group, and and okay, now it's time to meditate, and you can see people all setting themselves up and going, and it's like they're going, uh, it's like, okay, here we go, right? <laughs> and, it's, and you can see, you can see it in their body language. You can see, you can feel it in their energy. It's like they're, okay, I'm buckling up. I'm putting the key in the ignition. I'm turning the key. I hear the, 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 the engine idling. Here we go. We're going to go somewhere, right? And that idling of the engine, that's effort. That's expectation. So, what I tell them is, uh, forget about here we go. We're not going anywhere. Here, instead, it's here we are. I tell them, you know, take the keys, throw them in the bushes, roll back the top. This is a convertible, roll back the top, sit back in the seat. Here we are. Now, what's going on without any contribution from us, without any effort from us? And then that that becomes the the so-called meditation. Another word that I don't like, meditation, it's got all those syllables. You know, four syllables, it sounds like it must be some big task. And it's not.
0: Yeah. Um, But, okay, I'm going to ask a basic question. Um, And people who are listening to this live can send in questions as we go along, if they like, by going to the upcoming interviews page on batgap.com, and then you'll see a question form at the bottom. I think a typical person at this point might say, well, if I just sit there and do nothing, I'm just going to sit there and daydream the whole time. You know, I'm, I'm going to be thinking about what's for dinner and, you know, what I did yesterday and my, you know, what my girlfriend said or whatever. That's what's the difference between, you know,
1: that's not meditation. Right. So I don't tell them sit there and do nothing. You, you're right. And it eventually comes down to that. But if, if you give that as the instruction, it's exactly that. Okay. I'm sitting, I'm doing nothing. Where's the remote, I'll light a cigarette, So what I suggest to people is, okay, well, you know, as we just said, okay, here we are, not here we go, here we are. What's going on without me? Well, what's going on without me is awareness without any effort from me, without any help from me. I'm aware of the colors and the shapes, I'm aware of the thoughts that tell me, okay, that color, that's a blue wall, and you know, that's a brown floor. So I'm aware of Seeing, I'm aware of thinking, I'm aware of hearing. So awareness is going on without me, without any thought from me, without any help from me. In fact, sometimes I'll suggest because you know if I see people saying, "Okay, I'm going to try to be aware," I go, "No, try to stop being aware. You can't do it. Awareness is every moment." And then, you know, we might close our eyes and go, okay, just notice all this stuff is coming and going, like the breezes coming and going in the sky, and and the sky, this open space within which all the experiences come and go, this is what we call awareness. You're already that space, everything's coming and going within you, so rest as awareness, as you already are. Rest as awareness. So, and I tell people, you know, and I like to boil things down to... Easy to remember, you know, practice slogans. So to remember three words, just rest as awareness. And if you find yourself grappling with something, oh, but what about when I'm going to cook for dinner? And what about X, Y, Z? Or resisting some feeling or something. I say, just, okay, whatever it is, relax your grip on it. Don't try to push it away. Don't require it to go away. Don't try to figure it out. Just whatever it is, relax your grip on it. Relax back into yourself. The rest as awareness. Hmm. Do you know how that compares with mindfulness, which is so
0: popular these days? I don't m- know, know myself because yeah. I haven't practiced mindfulness. But how does that compare?
1: You know that word mindfulness has become—it's such a popular buzzword. And I, and I'll I do workshops, and they'll they'll start writing up the description. Dean Slider's is going to teach us mindfulness, and I say, no, 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 I, I have no idea what mindfulness is. And then I show up, and they've got it on the marquee anyway. <laughs> um, there's so it's that word has become so popular that uh i I don't i don't know what it it basically it means two things i mean one is you know is a particular form of of practice southeast asian practice which is not my training and the other it's become sort of a um more palatable generic synonym for meditation like i had a, a nice talk a couple of years ago with tim ryan Uh, he's this congressman from Youngstown, Ohio, uh, who is, he's great. Yeah. I really like him. He's a, he's a totally out of the closet meditator. And he's very clear about the fact that, you know, we've got, uh, veterans suffering from PTSD, committing suicide. We've got all these problems with the education system. The research is there that we can't afford not to introduce meditation into these systems, but he doesn't use the word meditation. He uses the word mindfulness because for some people, even in the year 2018, I'm kind of flabbergasted that some people, the word meditation still evokes, you know, I know flying carpets and beds of nails or something. Not, not as bad as it was when we first started teaching. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: I just want to mention since we were dissing the TM movement a little bit (laughs) a while ago, uh, that they're doing some great stuff with, you know, in prisons and inner-city schools and and PTSD sufferers and so on, through, primarily through the David Lynch Foundation, which my good friend Bobby Roth is the CEO of. So, and most people, those people are being taught for free. You know, so it, it's not all about the money with the TM movement. And
1: I think you and I are both very appreciative
0: of the benefits we gained from that whole thing. Uh,
1: look, it's all about people suffering less and getting happy more. <laughs> and yeah. Whatever does that, I'm all for it.
0: Yeah. Now, I don't think we've quite nailed an understanding yet of what you and I would understand as the natural tendency of the mind to seek a field of greater happiness. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's critical or essential to what you're right. implying here or what you're teaching. Right. So let's explore that
1: a little bit more so that people understand right. that idea. Right. So that is why effortlessness works. Uh, I mean, we, we, we've already discussed why effort it, it, it doesn't work or is only going to work with great difficulty because it's essentially counterproductive, self-defeating. Um, the reason that effortlessness works is it allows that natural tendency of the mind to move toward more fulfillment, more enjoyment. It allows it to, to take over, you know, in every moment, not just in meditation, but, um, you know, you're in the restaurant. Your your mind is, your fingers is going down the menu. Okay, do I want the cheeseburger or do I want the, the, the Caesar salad? I know what you want. You want Nirvana, but <laughs> it ain't on the menu. So, so you settle for the cheeseburger. In every moment, we're essentially settling for the the most the nearest approximation to Nirvana that that we feel we can find in, in, within that that context, that framework.
0: Yeah, and that may be a bit of a leap, but let's let's flesh it out a little bit. Like right now, you and I are talking here, and people are listening, and it could be that you know, as they're listening, some beautiful music starts playing from the other room, or you know, the phone rings and it's their long lost beloved friend or something. So something that has potentially, as hard as this may be to imagine, greater intrinsic gratification than listening to you and I talk has. presented itself in their awareness, and it doesn't take effort for them to shift their attention to that other thing. Right.
1: Not only does it not take effort, but it doesn't even take a conscious decision or evaluation. It just, it just goes there. It's like, you know, heap-seeking missiles. We are fulfillment-seeking organisms. Now, the thing is that as we seek fulfillment in those things, let's say I have a desire, like, oh, I, I want some tea so okay i want some tea i want some beer Ah, i I got the tea and, and it made me more fulfilled so now i'm going to tend to think well there must be fulfillment in the tea because that's where i got it from but if we take the tea into the lab and we you know we pull it apart into its constituent molecules. We'll find you know atoms of uh, carbon and hydrogen, oxygen, whatever's in there. We're not going to find any happiness molecules in there. So that only leaves one other place where it can be, and that is in, in me, in the experience of rather than experience. So what happens is, at the moment that I get the T, I'm no longer caught in that desire, so I sink back into myself into my own nature which is you know what all the teachings say in various language that the nature of the experiencer the nature of awareness itself is such Ananda, is is being consciousness bliss and what we're doing in meditation then is essentially eliminating the middleman rather than depending on some outer object or substance or circumstances to trigger the settling back into ourselves—we just settle back into self—and that comes in handy because you never know. You never know what's going to happen next in life. That's one of the reasons I love working with prisoners. They know they're not going to get fulfillment from their their environment because their environment sucks, and 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 it's, they know it's not going to stop sucking. And I've had situations where like one of my guys stopped showing up to our Thursday night meetings. I asked you what happened to him? Well, he got brought up on charges. They put him in ad seg, you know, administrative segregation, which is solitary confinement. In this case, they actually shipped him to another prison, put him in a cell above the boiler where it was like a hundred degrees all the time. And you know, with no TV, no anything for three months. So he said, okay, uh, I guess it's time for a meditation retreat. He took off his clothes because it was hot, and he essentially meditated for three months. Uh, and when he came back, he was, he was really glad that he learned to do that.
0: Interesting. What we're implying here is that there is sort of an inner or intrinsic field or reservoir, or whatever you want to call it, of fulfillment, or happiness, or gratification, which is independent of sensory experiences, and that you can be happy in solitary confinement with nothing there, uh, because you're discovering something within that is not that has nothing to do with outer circumstances, just as recapitulate what you just exactly. said
1: exactly and we use you know provisionally we use this kind of dualistic language and we say okay it's something within us it's a field within us and uh, you know we talked that way for a while and and as the closer we look the more we realize that it's not something within us but it is the the very the very awareness within which right now these words are being heard within which the, these computer screens are being seen that that's you know that the the the, on the screen we see different colors the words we hear different sounds but where's that all happening that's all happening here in something that has no color has no sound no location no gender no nothing and that's it you know i if we strangely enough i just thought of an interview once with alfred hitchcock and I think it was Truffaut interviewing him, and he asked him, what's your idea of happiness? And Hitchcock said, a clear horizon. And that really, I think, you know, because we tend to think of, oh, this happiness, this bliss, this nirvana, that it's going to be some, it's like 24-7 psychedelic orgasm, you know, and that I'm going to have purple flames shooting out of my crown chakra. and. It, and, and oh wow we're going to be walking around like that all the time i know i certainly thought about it that way at the beginning and as we get you know deeper into or or as we grow and kind of mature into the actual experience of it we find out that well that would just be another phenomenon that would be what happens on the on the the so-called spiritual path is we go from looking for happiness and fulfillment in outer phenomena outer experiences okay the cadillac of the you know whatever to inner stuff oh i you know i remember a poster once that the tm movement sent out actually trying to get people to go on a retreat in where was it north carolina or somewhere and the headline on the poster was have the best experiences of your life that was language that would have spoken to me you know 10 or 15 years earlier but at that point i was saying oh this is what chögyam Trungpa called spiritual materialism you know collecting experi- okay looking for something that is outside even if it's within my mind or within my body something some super cool phenomenon rather than just settling into what i am which is non-phenomenal awareness it's just the best statement on this I ever heard was actually from Marishi. And you know how Marishi would say things over and over and over again. You know, some of these things, some of the the things that you were saying earlier, I, I know we heard Marishi, you know, about the natural tendency of the mind, right? How many hundreds of times were we, did we hear Marishi say this? But this was just once in 1972 in Fuji, Italy. He was trying to describe Awakening. He was trying to describe the nature of awareness, existence, and he said, "It's just nothing, but there's something very good about it."
0: That's yeah. nice. The Gita has that line: "The unreal has no being; the real never ceases to yeah. be." So experiences which come and go—you yeah. know, however flashy or, or fascinating they may be couldn't be the real ultimately because they come and go ramana used to emphasize
1: that right, point too right, 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 yeah and especially i know a lot of the people who who watch your your program are you know really mature practitioners they've been at this for some years and that can become one of the great challenges when you have some you know after years of meditation you have some oh, just great blissful experience and at me you go this is it i've arrived i'm you know stick a fork in me i'm done and, uh, and it may go on for hours or weeks, and then it goes away. And, uh, I've heard Muji talk about this. I know you've interviewed Muji. And, and, uh, I've heard Muji say, you know, we could write a book titled, And Then. And this is really a hard teaching, uh, at that point, which is anything that goes away, you've got to let it go away. Anything that can be thrown into the fire, throw it into the fire throw everything into the fire throw the thrower into the fire throw the fire into the fire and then just rest in the space that's left and that's it yeah that's it and
0: there are even abiding states which aren't you know transitory experiences which seem stable and which are actually not it yeah. I, I forget who i was talking to recently but somebody they were they're out they were saying how in s- some tradition i forget which one it's understood that there are like six or seven stages each of which makes one feel that they have arrived and nothing more could possibly right. unfold for right. them and but then sure enough that one on, collapses right. or whatever and the next one right.
1: dawns, and there are like six or seven of these right. stages right <laughs> yep. yeah so yeah we don't we don't don't be too in a hurry to write the end
0: yeah um now materialists might say that you know consciousness is just an epiphenomenon of brain activity and that there is no sort of field of consciousness or any such thing which is intrinsically blissful ananda or gratifying and that somehow meditation just sort of settles down physiological activity in such a way that some kind of neurochemical change takes place or something, and you feel greater fulfillment, Mm -hmm. but that you're not actually tapping into any field of consciousness because there is no such Mm -hmm. thing. Um, What would you say in response to that?
1: I would say that that materialist perspective is based on an assumption, an unproved and unprovable assumption. Which is that outside of our experience, there's an independently existing universe made out of stuff called matter. Right? No one's ever experienced matter. Right? No one's ever experienced it. All we experience, and it's, it, and some people, is, they, they'll hear this once and they go, right, I get it. And some people just really have trouble hearing this, uh, because that assumption is so ingrained that of course i'm experiencing the computer i'm experiencing the camera i'm experiencing the mic but if we take a close look what are you experiencing okay well i'm experiencing like we say okay experience the dog because i hear the dog barking well wait do you really experience the dog you experience this barking sound you know for uh, i mean just on a gross level maybe somebody's standing outside your window with a boom box pointing recording of a barking dog. So, you're not experiencing the dog, you're experiencing the sound of the barking. Okay. There's... Now, if I close my eyes, that's not crucial, but it might be helpful. Close the eyes and and take a look. Okay. So, and I say, I hear the barking. Now, what's the difference between... And, and that sounds as if there's two different things. The, the hearing and the barking. But... See if you can find a, 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 any line of separation between hearing and barking. And you realize that, no, hearing, it's, just, it's one, it's a phenomenon of hearing. Now, what is that phenomenon made out of? Is it made out of fur? <laughs> you know, is it made out of doggy DNA? No, it's made out of awareness. It's a modification of awareness. It's awareness arising in a particular form. Now, I think, okay, I see the object, I see the dog. Well, okay, what is seeing? We, again, we say, I see the dog, but it's just I'm experiencing seeing arising in a, in a certain form. What is that seeing made out of? Oh, that's also a modulation of awareness. And then how much distance is there between that seeing awareness and that hearing awareness and this eye awareness and the closer you look, the more you see that the separation, I assume, was there, that you can't find any. Okay. So, you know, this brings us to non-duality. This, this brings us to, you know, all there is, is awareness, playing, sloshing around awareness <laughs> in awareness, arising in this, you know, these different, as these different apparent phenomena. Uh, we can't necessarily deny that there is a physical universe outside of our awareness that's giving rise to these experiences. But it just, as far as I can see, it is inescapably, logically impossible to demonstrate the existence of an external universe when all anyone ever experiences is awareness. I know you've interviewed Rupert Spira, who I think is just wonderfully lucid about these things. And, you know, he says, you know, people talk about, you know, he, he points out, you know, matter is a concept that was invented by Greek philosophers, and no one has ever experienced it. That's the assumption. As he says, he says, the, the, the scientists are the real mystics. They call us mystics. They're the real mystics. They've, they've created this whole idea of a universe around a thing that no one's ever experienced. Now, when you talk that way, though,
0: um, it sort of makes it sound like the existence of the universe is very much kind of a subjective phenomenon based upon, you know, our, there's some kind of process that, that gives reality to something that appears to be external but is basically, like you said, awareness sloshing around with itself. But at the same time, there seems to be a sort of a A template or stability to the external world which is independent of the any individual perspective for instance you know all seven billion people in the world presuming they see well enough could see the moon and we don't see three moons unless we're crazy or hallucinating or something we all see this one moon with certain features on it and we've sent people there and you know they've scooped up rocks and brought them home and and so on and so forth so you know and you know, 200 years ago, none of us were alive, and now the people who lived then are all dead, but they all still kept seeing the same moon. So there's sort of a, a stability to the universe that is irrespective of individual. So, you know, there's this kind of argument that apparently Albert Einstein and Rabindranath Tagore had one another, with one another over whether the moon exists if nobody's mm-hmm. experiencing it. Uh, and... Uh, you know, I've played with this and thought, okay, well, if we all agree not to look at it, we're still going to have tides. There's there's some kind of external phenomenon there, which appears to be external, but but which is independent of any of our subjective well, here, here's perspectives. Well,
1: here's the thing, Rick. <laughs> the thing is, uh, first of all, when you say, you know, does the moon exist if none of us look at it? Or, you know, if a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it? give, does it make a sound? How many people have just busted their brains trying to wrap wrap their their minds around that one? First of all, someone has slipped a joker into the deck there. In the way that that question is phrased, see, when you say, does the moon exist, if we don't look at it, the way you have constructed that sentence, when you say the moon, there's an implicit assumption that there's this thing called the moon that exists. And then you're asking whether it exists. But be that as it may. Let's say you have a dream. In the dream, you see three moons. And you've got all your friends in the dream see the three moons. You, you Seven billion people are actually in this dream. There's there's 100 billion people in, in the world. They look up, they all see the three moons. In the dream, you pick up the, the science books and the history books, and you see that this has been confirmed... Know, for that. And we've sent astronauts to, to the three moons, they've explored it. All that is there. We, we pull out our dream scientific instruments, we measure it, we bring back geological samples. It's, it's, it's all there, it's all there. And it's all there and that is your reality, that is reality until you wake up and you go, why, I thought that that stuff was made out of matter, but it was all just made out of my awareness, dream awareness. But now, here I am in this world where there's one moon and my seven people, seven billion friends confirm it, and it's the same thing all over again. That's why, you know, Yogi Vasishta, a name, I know you know, yeah, Yogi, yoga. Y- yeah, yeah uh, uh, Vas- Vasishta said, there are two kinds of dreams, the short ones and the long one, this being the long one. But the thing is, I mean, it's fun to talk about this stuff, but... It's, it's, it's not very productive, because meanwhile, while we're sitting here enjoying our metaphysical speculation, you know, folks are suffering. And that's what I come back to. And And my wife is very good about telling me when I tend to start, you know, waxing too metaphysical. So you say, no, no, you know, people, if that's the way things are, eventually they're going to see it. And there's no use trying to convince people because until they see they see it for themselves they're they're not going to be open to that and it doesn't matter you know if people if what get to me if what gets people into the tent is uh my blood pressure is high then great you know i I really found this out in my years uh at the the pingree school the prep school where i taught in new jersey you know we had kids who you know, they just they were under all this pressure from their parents. You've got to get into Dartmouth. You've got to get into Yale. You, you know, you, you need more after-school jobs for your college resume. But they were, you know, some of these kids were at the breaking point. And, you know, and and, and some of them, a lot of them, you know, I'd be talking about enlightenment. I actually taught a, uh, a lecture, an elective course, an elective English course for juniors and seniors called uh, Literature of Enlightenment. And, uh, you know, we read Plato's Symposium and the Gospel of Thomas and you know, Kerouac and Salinger. Essentially, I constructed the, the English course that I wish had been in my high school when I was 17 years old. And it was great. And the kids, you know, a lot of the kids really got into it. And the lab work was meditation. Um, but a lot of kids took the course because they knew I'm um, stressed. And I thought, fine, you'll come for the stress relief. You'll stay for the Enlightenment.
0: Yeah. In your last sentence sort of implies that it's okay to swing back and forth between the practical and the the metaphysical, you know, because the metaphysical, if we want to call it that, does have Implications. It can shift your whole perspective on what life is about and what, it's, what the potential of life can be and so on. And we live in a society in which a materialist worldview is predominant, you know, and, and kind of tightly linked with the whole scientific method and the whole t- technologies we've devised and everything, and we're destroying that world. And it, it can be argued that we're destroying it because of the materialistic mindset in which we see the world on, as dumb stuff, as matter, which has no sentience, which has no in, intrinsic divinity, um, and which is here for our yes, it's, for and our and, use. and we see
1: it as here for our use. And we can never get enough of it because we keep, you know, it's like the old Irish right. saying: "You can you can drink too much, but you can never drink enough." So, uh, so yeah, yeah, you know, and we keep okay. So you know, this thing is supposed to fill me up, and then it doesn't. So okay, I, I got to gobble up more. I got to yeah. gobble up more. You, yeah, you know, and I, you know, and you, you no see things point. like you know, as far as I can see, you know, uh, you know, oil companies that are doing these things to you know, mining companies to, that are going to guarantee and politicians. Doing things now, loosening up regulations that that look like they're going to guarantee that there there may not be breathable air for their children and their grandchildren. But they're but geez, I can make another billion dollars if I do this. And they're just it's as if they're they're hypnotized by that. And it's as if and I used to see this look in the eyes of some of the the pingree dads. <laughs> You know, when I was cause here are some of these people who were captains of industry and had as much money as, you know, you could ever, was, was way more money than I could ever dream of making. And it's like, okay, I got the car, I got the trophy wife, I got that all that, I've got my kid going to the, the best school in the state. And, and sometimes I felt like I could see in their eyes this kind of panic look like, oh, my God, I did everything I was told to do, and I'm still not happy. Now what? So, I like to give people, you know, to, let's just to swing all the way from, you know, a profound metaphysical speculation. And, you know, Maharishi used to say this. I remember Maharishi used to say, don't burden people with your supreme knowledge. <laughs> so, I like to give people stuff like, you know, you're sitting at the red light trying to make it turn green faster. Mm. And everyone can relate to that, right? We've all tried to do it. Say, has that ever worked for you? Well, here's my guarantee to you, over the rest of your life, no matter how many man hours or woman hours you spend doing that, you will never make the light turn green, even a nanosecond sooner. Ah, there's such liberation in, in realizing that. You know, that simple, you know?
0: Yeah, if saying it can really well, go I'll tell deep to a person's yeah. psychology. Uh, yeah, yeah, sometime, yeah. Uh, Sometimes it's more than just uh, the but words. You know,
1: you'd be, you'd be surprised, and to a certain degree. And again, this goes back to our training as TM teachers. We tend to have a bias against what Maharishi called mood making. You know, um, which which was very useful to make that distinction, I think, up to a point. But his idea was okay. You meditate twenty minutes twice a day, and then you forget it. And then, and then because the change happens on a physiological level, it's there automatically. But then what that did was, you know, I think that, you know, everything in the spiritual life is a double-edged sword. And I think what that did was it eliminated the whole other 23 hours and 20 minutes of the, of the day as a field where you could also be doing stuff that opens it up. And sometimes, and I know, again, because, you know, I've been doing this for years now, doing these workshops, and... I'll explain that thing about sitting at the red light to people and a whole lot of people just go, oh, and you and it's just, you know, and this is what (laughs) this is what in the Buddhist world is called view, view, right? And not view as in opinion, but view as in sight, as in perspective, what it actually is, is realizing that what you've been, what you thought you were seeing is not there. You know, it's like you come home one day and there's a tiger in your living room and you're terrified and your, your blood pressure is elevated and you think, should I take some blood pressure medicine? Should I call the tiger exterminator? What should I do? And then your wife comes home and says, Rick, how do you like the new paper tiger I have installed in the living room? It's very lifelike, isn't it? <laughs> right? And then <laughs> oh, you realize that uh. and your blood pressure goes down. And you don't and and you don't have to repeat the thing you don't have to go around saying it's only a paper tiger it's only a paper tiger. having seen that with some clarity once you can't unsee it.
0: Yeah, and, of course, the more famous example is the snake, you know, where it's, it's sort of dark, and you're walking down the road, and you see a, a rope on the road, and it looks like a snake, and you right. freak out, and you go running back to the village and get a committee to come and try to you know, get rid of the snake. Turns out it's just right. a rope, and once right. you have right. seen it as a rope, yeah. you can't see it um, as a snake anymore.
1: And, um, yeah. and and that's physiological change. You know, it it, it works both ways. Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. it does and i think a balance is useful because there is the i've run into it a lot in doing these interviews there is the phenomenon of people sort of psyching themselves up into an intellectual understanding of non-duality or something and in my opinion mistaking that for the actual living experience of it and you know and you know they've read too many books or whatever and then they they get on the chat groups and make holy terror of themselves you know being as non-dual as they can possibly be with others
1: and and so on and and so you know well i i like the way uh sri nisargadatta maharaj put it he said don't try to understand it's enough that you don't misunderstand that's
0: good yeah yeah and there's a tibetan saying don't mistake understanding for realization well, let's see here. A question came in from Kranti in Freehold, New Jersey, of all places, pretty near your old stomping ground. Her question is, it is often claimed that awakening happens spontaneously or by chance and that you really have no control. But I feel that there are many subtle processes going on to make it happen. And one day we'll be able to track its progress like we can do now mm. for a shipment What's
1: your you know, on? There's, a, there's a line in one of Hemingway's novels where one character says to the other, how, how did you go bankrupt? And he says, well, two ways. First, gradually, then suddenly. And, and I think awakening <laughs> tends to be, well, it's different for different people. Uh, and we tend to, you know, usually the ones that get a lot of play in the literature are the sexy stories. The ones like, like we read, I mean, the wonderful, inspiring story, and I've told Mm -hmm. it so many times of, of Sri Ramana Maharshi's awakening. You know, the 16 year old kid who has a panic attack, he thinks he's dying, and, but has the, somehow the innate wisdom to, instead of panicking, to, okay, let it go. Okay, there goes the body, there go the senses, there go the thoughts. And then when he let everything go away, what was left was not death, it was, it was awakening. It was, you know, as Maharishi said, just nothing but something very good about it. Um, so those tend to be the ones that we look at, the dramatic ones. For most people, I think it's much more, it's a gradual, slow cook thing. It's like, you know, the apple ripening on the tree. And then, after the years of the apple ripening, maybe a particular breeze comes along and the apple falls. Right. But then, the, usually, the stories that yeah. we read are the stories about the moment when the apple falls. You know, like there's a great story, and I've used this in in, in my writing right. somewhere about a, a a Zen practitioner who's he's walking through the busy marketplace one day, and hears butcher, uh, he hears the uh, butcher he hears someone saying to the butcher, uh, "Give me give me your best cut, give me the best piece of meat." And the butcher says, it's all the best. And the monk goes, right? Yeah. <laughs> it is all the best. All Sounds uh, like an Indian and the, butcher. And, 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 the, and, oh, the and the monk here's here's that, an and of one, and just realizes <laughs> it's all the best. It's, it's all the best. So, so we hear that story, which is great, and it's beautiful, and it's poetic. But, you know, what we tend to forget is that the monk probably spent years of, of meditation before that moment happened. Or we, there's another one about a, a monk of uh, 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 um, he's rowing across a foggy lake, and he hears the cawing of a crow. And that cawing of the crow for him is the, the Mahavakya, you know, the awakening, the great utterance that does somehow. That's it. The cawing of the crow that does it. Um, so, and what, and the the mistake would be for people to hear that and go, "Okay, I got to find that lake and go there and wait for a crow to come, and and that'll." W-. And in a sense, that's that's the story of. That's how religions start. You know, I once heard, you know, our dear recently departed friend, Jerry Jarvis. I once heard him say, okay, you want to hear the history of religion in a nutshell? One day a guy was sitting out in a tomato patch <laughs> and and he, and he woke up. And then a hundred years later, people were sitting in tomato patches, waiting for the great tomato to come and wearing little, you know, tomato medallions around their necks. <laughs>
0: Yeah. yeah, I remember there was a what they used to call refrigerator quote of Marushi because people used to put these things on their refrigerators that was, you know, don't think that you can't get enlightened in New York City. He said, you know, when the time for awakening has come, even the stench yeah. of you know, like the Zen bus stories. exhaust could be you know, the, of course
1: the final trigger. There are a lot of Zen stories where, where a monk will go to the Roshi, to the master, and say, you know, one of the classic questions is, what is the Buddha? meaning not what is that guy who lived, you know, 2,500 years ago, but what is Buddha nature, what is enlightenment, what is ultimate reality? But they So they phrase it as, what is the Buddha? And sometimes you're told, well, the Buddha is the beautiful sunset or the Buddha is the, the geese in, in August disappearing over the horizon. That's very beautiful and poetic. But I like the stories where the master says, the Buddha is a pile of cow shit in the middle of the road. <laughs> right because if you yeah, know it. that sign- if you can see it there you can see it everywhere you know i one book that I wrote. I want to mention this book because this is yeah we're going to talk about that so we're going to talk about some movies yeah before good, we're done. good 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 because this is this, this is the book I was looking up my sales figures the other day which you can do online now and like this is this is the, the my book that sold the fewest copies and I keep thinking one day this book is going to get rediscovered because <laughs> I had some maybe today's so, the day. maybe so cinema nirvana enlightenment lessons from the movies so when I was writing this one. And and people said, oh, you're writing about enlightenment lessons in movies? Okay, you need to write about the Matrix and, you know, all this really yeah, obvious brother stuff. brother, son, sister, moon. and Yeah, right, there. blah, blah. So I didn't write about any of that low-hanging fruit. Uh, so what I wrote about was Jaws, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, all this stuff where you wouldn't think, you'd think there couldn't possibly be Dharma There couldn't possibly be spiritual teaching there. and and Because I just start with the premise, if the infinite, if the Buddha nature is what it's supposed to be, it has to be everywhere. It has to be in the pile of cow shit. It has to be even in a crappy movie like Independence Day. So I deliberately wrote a chapter about Independence Day. Well, I always like to say
0: that if we actually think about what we're looking at, you know, including a pile of cow shit in the road... And just kind of drill down or zoom in a little bit, you know, to the molecular level, let's say, you see this marvelous thing happening there and little bacteria and how, how immensely complex and sophisticated little mechanisms they are and and then take it down to the atomic level, the subatomic, the quantum level. There's all these amazing, you know, laws of nature which we scarcely, we don't fully understand operative in every little particle of creation mm-hmm. near and far large and small mm-hmm. and that's the divine in in play and we just for the most
1: part ignore it yeah and you know to a certain degree you can do it intellectually which is kind of what you were describing and then the other thing that happens which is more neurological as you just continue to meditate and then you open your eyes you know this morning i was looking up and again i'm so fortunate to be living here in a little beach bungalow in santa monica and there's these three magnificent palm trees towering above our little cottage here i'm looking up at those palm trees i'm going what are those things those that that's you know (laughs) you used to be we would drop acid to have that kind of whoa." (laughs) Wow <laughs> you know, that, that is amazing but but you know there is this freshness of awareness that if you pay a little bit of attention uh and and not you know don't you oh yeah, that's a palm tree, I've seen palm trees a million times that's just a concept if you look up at the actual experience, I go wow, yeah, well, it was like we
0: were saying a few minutes ago with the mood making point if if you just sort of stop for a moment and kind of contemplate the miracle of wife and the miracle of what you're actually experiencing even though it might be a sort of an intellectual trigger it evokes a sort of
1: a visceral or experiential change mm-hmm. you know yeah. yeah yeah it's 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 all going on all the time <laughs> under all circumstances and uh you know one of the great joys of you know kind of coming into greater maturity as a practitioner of this stuff is that the the apparent dividing line between so-called meditation or so-called spiritual practice and so-called life, you know, that apparent dividing line more gets blurrier and, and blurrier. And, and then you realize, oh, this is what Maharishi was saying way back when. This is what's supposed, supposed to happen. This is what he called CC. You know, cosmic consciousness. And and he he did such a beautiful job of of outlining it in a in a linear way and putting words to that. But again, everything being a double edged sword, that also tended to make us I know it tended to make me think of, okay, cosmic consciousness, that's going to be another phenomenon that I experience. And it's And it's gonna be so awesome and you'll be able to know everybody's thoughts and, mm-hmm. know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Although Although, you know, the more, uh, and I find that, and I'm sure you, you find that, the 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 more you become free of all your conceptual noise, I mean, the conceptual noise may still be there, but you become less, uh, it, it's got, its claws are less deep into you. You, you become less invested in it. Uh, so you, what I find is that I think less, which is a great relief. I think less. And I, or if the thoughts are there, I just know they're just, they're just freaking thoughts. That's all, <laughs> you know, they've got nothing to do with reality. So there's less investment in thoughts and that leaves space to see what's going on. And, and then, and that looks to other people like you're reading their minds, you know, like I had a, a, a this, this pair of this, these two friends of mine who were, had been, you know, romantically involved for a while and they, they showed up one day at my door. They, I, they rang the bell. I opened the door and I looked at them. And I said, oh, you're getting married. You know, and it's not that I was drilling into their skulls. It was just, it, it was obvious. You know, you just, you see stuff. And also I find, and I, I write about this. Uh, I've got a chapter or two about this in, in, in the new book. Um, again, coming back to the practical level where people get hung up and, and suffer. But so many people are paralyzed by trying to make Decisions. And it's because they try to make decisions by thinking through all the possibilities. But the possibilities keep branching. You know, I can go this way or this way. Well, if I go this way, then that can go this way. This one, you know, pretty soon it's 2, 4, 8, 16. And you can go crazy trying to figure out, trying to make decisions. Now, this word decide comes from the Latin decidere, which means to cut which I interpret as rather than, okay, I'm going to follow the proliferation of all those branches and finally compute the whole thing. Okay, you think about that for a while, and then the, the moment of decision is a moment where you cut off all the branches but one. And you do that not by thinking, you do it by seeing, by feeling. And feeling not in the sense of some vague emotion, but feeling like You know, this is one of the reasons why it's so wonderful to watch great athletes. You know, when LeBron James is charging the net and there's five defenders on him and, he, you know, he makes the shot. It's not that he can think, okay, this guy's going this way. You know, it's all going way too fast to think about. But he can can see, he can feel by not being invested in his thought. He can see, he can feel uh one nanosecond from now where where the path is going to open up the path between where he is and the net and this is one of the reasons why it's so exciting to watch anything being done at that level because it we resonate to that it's like oh yeah like that's that's the way I want to be able to do everything that's that's that is functioning from the zone that's what enlightened activity is like we we intuitively recognize it it feels great whether it's you know sports or acting the arts music anything you know that's why great uh, jazz is, you know you listen to Coltrane go in places with the saxophone that no one ever could have would have gone before and he can never go that way again a second time it's just it's like opening up in front of him I think that the story of of the the red sea parting in front of moses i suspect that that's a metaphor for that same thing and and more and more it's just that's what life feels like they don't have to think about all this stuff so much anymore yeah
0: it's what Marsh used to call spontaneous right action and there was another phrase he used to use, which was supportive nature. And uh, I'll tell you an interesting experience we had yesterday. There's this Facebook group, which I think is all over the country, but there's a local chapter of it here called Fur Babies. And, and people use it to report lost cats and dogs that they either find or have lost, and sometimes other animals. So, so yesterday, uh, somebody reported having found a, a young possum in a trash can probably it got in there with its mother and the mother got out and the baby couldn't. And so they said, you know, what should I do with this possum? And Irene, my wife is a an avid animal lover. And she naturally began to feel like, what can we do to help this possum? So we went out to Walmart to get some stuff. And right in front of us, as we were looking for a parking place was a car with Virginia license plates. And the word of the, you know, the actual thing on the license plate, instead of a number was possums. So, we know we got out and and we walked up to the woman, and we said, "Do you rescue possums by any chance?" Wow. And she said, "Yes, I do
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so we kind of connected her with the person who had found the possum and all that stuff so so that's what i would that's what he used right. to call supportive nature. I think it's <laughs> your life begins to click
1: that way sometimes, sometimes you know and and yeah, and I've experienced a lot of it on the other hand, you know, I think it was Mark Twain said. Any party that takes the credit for the rain will have to accept the, the blame for the drought. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and, and, you know, like when I hear that, and this is just me, but, you know, I hear the law of attraction stuff. of Okay, I'm going to do my spiritual whatever it is, and, and it's going to make, you know, uh, the money come to me. And the, You know, it, I kind of hope that that doesn't work. Well, it's too willful and manipulative
0: in those cases. I mean, we had no idea we were gonna, you know, run into a woman who rescues possums who happened to just arrive in town for Virginia. Uh, it was more like just to, had the desire, forgot about the desire, and then boom, some kind of fulfillment. Yes,
1: you you you, you leave yourself open. You just you're, you're again. You're just resting back in awareness. You're resting back in openness, and the stuff that's needed does have a tendency to show up. I find this when I'm writing, when I I set out to write a new book. Okay, now I'm going to write a book about fearing less, or now I'm going to write a book about movies, and then like the the stories that I need start showing up in the, the New York Times or I, or I start hearing the anecdotes that I need from, from people. And, you know, I'm just kind of like a little magpie. Okay, I'll take this little piece of this little gum wrapper and, you know, I build a little nest. <laughs> I want to look oh. back to Kranti's question
0: before we get too far afield, um, which was about can you trace the mechanics or something of awakening or enlightenment? And I think that there's something we haven't touched upon, which is worth mentioning, which is that there There should be, I mean, if, if awakening or enlightenment or whatever word you want to use is a profoundly different state of functioning than is ordinarily, is the norm, then there should be a profoundly different state of physiology uh, associated with it or correlated with it. And there ancient traditions um, which have charted that out in great detail. I have Joan Harrigan's books on my shelf, Kundalini Vidya, and she has it all mapped out in great detail, and I'm sure other traditions have done the same. And it may be something that, you know, modern neurophysiology um, manages to understand quite clearly over time. I've, I've interviewed a couple of neurophysiologists recently who are dedicating their lives to that, um, and I think it will necessitate an a, a understanding of subtle physiology as well as gross physiology to really come to terms with
1: it. You know, I think on the on the one hand, that's really exciting and it's really great and important that someone do that. On the other hand, kind of from the the practical side of the practitioner, which is always my bias, it doesn't matter. You know, you know, we had we we had. Well, yeah. I mean, you don't.
0: Have, I mean, LeBron James doesn't worry about what's going on LeBron. in his neurophysiology or how his brain works or anything like that. He just is great at playing basketball. Uh, and in fact, you know, I was
1: talking about Coltrane before. Um, wait, who's the other great tenor saxophonist? Who did the bridge? I, mean, I forget right now. But the the story is that Gunther Schiller, who was a, who was a, a music critic wrote this essay about oh this is what this jazz player is doing this this brilliant stuff that no one's done before and he's you know he's stacking the chords vertically instead of horizontally or something like this and then the the musician made the mistake of reading the essay and then he, he couldn't do it anymore it messed it messed him up it made him self-conscious about it. but i mean for example you know in the jungles of ancient india we had yogis doing all these centuries of just you know trial and error research and development and one of the things that they discovered was ujjayi breath you know the the darth vader breath where you do that constriction in the back of your throat and they discovered that you know if i breathe that way boy it just really has this profound tranquilizing effect it's really a good kind of on-ramp to meditation now Fast forward many centuries, we find out that, oh, when you do that constriction in the back of your throat, you're stimulating the vagus nerve, which runs from the base of the brain down to the diaphragm. And that tends to switch off the sympathetic nervous system and the fight-or-flight response that it elicits and switches on the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the, you know, the stay-and-play response. So, So, okay, fine, we know the mechanics, we know how it works. But... We still do Ujjayi breath the same way.
0: Yeah. So the yogis that you refer to were basically conducting a scientific experiment all those centuries ago. And know these days with, with modern science, experiments have been done to discover what you just explained. And I don't think there's any harm in that. Uh, it's just it's an addition to human knowledge. And since the Pandora's box is open in terms of scientific understanding, it's not going to be closed. Um, it. There's, a, I think, there's a mutual sort of um, symbiotic benefit to spirituality and science. You know, getting in bed yeah. together, if we want to mix yeah, metaphors, yeah, yeah, yeah. each yeah. one can help the other tremendously.
1: Right, but I think there's one or two things to be careful of, which, mm-hmm. which is always true when you get in bed with anyone. Um, and you want to, you want to use appropriate protection. Um, <laughs> and and in this case, um, we have to be careful of you know as more, uh, as the the neurophysiological symptoms of awakening perhaps are described in greater detail, we have to continue to be vigilant to not mistake one symptom for the cause. You know, this is something that happened back in the 70s, I think, with the, uh, the popularity of biofeedback. Oh, the people who are in, this, in an awakened state, they stop producing. They have alpha waves instead of beta waves. So let me figure out how to produce more alpha waves. They have waves alpha waves or whatever. Awakened. And it doesn't necessarily work that way.
0: hmm Yeah. No, good point. Um, you know, a lot of the neurophysiological correlates of meditation or higher states of consciousness, you can't consciously manipulate them or, or try to trigger them in order to evoke those states of consciousness, which is an interesting consideration in itself, because a lot of people these days are hoping yes. that there's going to be some yeah. kind of app, or some kind of right. contraption that you can strap on your head, or something that, that's going to, you know, sh- give you a shortcut to enlightenment. Why go through decades mm-hmm. of practice where right. you can just strap right. this thing on and you're golden right. in, 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 a, in an hour? <laughs>
1: yep. yep, 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 yep. But, you know, again, the desire for something quick is not a wrong desire, uh, and, and again, this is why. I, and I'm finding myself emphasizing this more and more in my teaching. Look, here's the thing you can do in 30 seconds. Like I've got this this chapter from 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 my new book, which is actually it's running on the, Oprah's website right now. It's on oprah.com. It's a two-page chapter in the book, and it's called "Breathe Through Your Feet." And I just point out to people, you know, you just put your attention on the soles of you. And you can do this while you're sitting comfortably with your eyes closed. Or you can do it while you're, they're introducing you and you're about to get up and do some public speaking that you're nervous about. And you're trying to call the person up for the date or, or, you know, whatever it is. And you just put your attention on the soles of your feet and kind of feel, kind of imagine that as you breathe in, you're breathing in through the soles of your feet. As you breathe out, you're breathing out through the soles of your feet. Now, I've gotten letters from people saying, man, I just started doing this breathing through, through your feet thing, and this is going to replace Ambien. I'm sleeping at night for the first time, you know? One thing that I love is is my favorite mantra to, to share with people these days, which is, whee! Okay? And, I thought you were going to say, ah. Well that, well, that too. That's another that's, one. That, that's another one. Um, but... Um, you know, especially so many people who are caught up in depression or grouchiness or some you know, and, and, and this makes use of, of uh something that actually was first studied by Charles Darwin, the the facial feedback hypothesis, which is as you know, Tick Hans says sometimes our joy is the source of our smile, but sometimes our smile is the source of our joy. It, it works both ways. So I have people going, Okay, one, two, three, wee and you gotta have the, the mudra along with the mantra. One, two, three, wee you do that three times. And I said, now try to be depressed, you know, and, and, and there's a lot of people walking around depressed and there really is this simple, and they you may or may not ever get them to sit down and close their eyes and, and meditate for 15, 20 minutes a day. We know, you and I know that anyone can do that and that it would really help them a lot. And if they would, we could, just get them to sit down and shut up and, and try it for 15 minutes and, and you know, lead them into the effortlessness. They they would get it, but maybe they're going to do it and maybe they're not. But, you can you know, and, and again, this was something Maharishi said uh, years ago, which is, you know, that he said sometimes um, he said he said when you need change for the parking meter, a quarter is more valuable than a hundred dollar bill. you know so we don't have to give people supreme enlightenment all the time give them something that's going to soften up their suffering a little bit give show them a little daylight and then maybe we can talk about the next thing
0: yeah that's good while we're at it um when I was in that section of your book where you presented Breathe Through Your Feet, you, I jotted down a few other little techniques like that that you mentioned. I, th- I thought I'd read them to you, and you could explain mm-hmm. to us what they are. One Another was relax at the moment of oh, contact.
1: Yeah. yeah. This, this one, and I tell the story, I, I got this teaching when I was practicing Aikido, this beautiful Japanese non-fighting martial art. When the person comes at you, the whole idea is instead of opposing them or fighting with them, you use their energy, use their momentum to help them sail across the room. So I was practicing for my next promotion test, and I had to do this thing where three attackers, one after another, come after me to, to try to tackle me. And they were succeeding in tackling me because every time some one of them grabbed me i was tightening up and not and i didn't realize that i was tightening up because i was so caught up in tightening up so the next time as the attacker rushed me i heard my teacher's voice he was halfway up the stairs to the to the men's dressing room, and he called out dean relax at the moment of contact and for a second i thought what what's he talking about and then i realized oh yeah i'm doing this And I, and it's physical, you know, and that's the wonderful thing about martial art, you get this physical feedback. And so I dropped it, dropped the tension out of my shoulders, did my energy drop to my center. I was doing the same, technically the same steps. You plant your feet like this, you pivot like this, but now it worked. Now the guy went sailing across the room, right? So most people are not going to practice aikido but the the attackers in life are okay is the crazy neighbor who's giving you a hard time about how you set out your trash cans the you know the baby possum the the whatever the the, the fact that that you know the the bad report about your biopsy you know these are the attackers of life and just through long standing habit we tend to tighten up whenever one of these things comes at us and you just just, you know, can remember that little practice slogan, relax at the moment of contact. Again, it it just opens up space around the situation. You're not so caught up in it. And and you can see your way more clearly to, to making appropriate responses. Take hey, it easy. Sinton. Take it as it comes. Simple.
0: Here's another one that you said, the sweetest dog in the world.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah. This is a thing, and I actually have this chapter on my website, because it's, it's one of my favorite things where you know, I saw this bumper sticker once that said, Dear Lord, please make me the person my dog thinks I am. Um, and uh, the, the, the little technique that I give is to sit, close your eyes, imagine that you've got the sweetest dog in the world with you. You, you guys may have the sweetest dog in the world, actually. Yeah, we think so. House, so you don't have to imagine. Well, squirrels that. don't think so, but we do. Right so and what you do is and this is an alternative to on the one side trying to suppress your afflictive emotions like you know your rage or your your grief or whatever it is and on the other hand like indulging in them and just getting caught up in the story so instead you close your eyes and imagine that you're telling the story to the sweetest dog in the world and just totally indulge. The indulgier the better. Just totally tell the whole thing. And the great thing about the this, the sweetest dog in the world is he's the world or she is the world's best listener, right? Doesn't disagree, doesn't agree, doesn't interpret, just doesn't understand all this waka 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 you're doing with your mouth, but does understand feelings. Oh, my dear human friend, he's so sad. Let me just... And, and the dog takes it into his heart and just explodes it into space and then I do a thing where, okay, after that's all gone go take a walk around the block, take a breather come back, do it a second time this time, imagine that you're the dog you're listening from within all that doggy fur looking out through those doggy eyes of love, and, and out there oh, there's my dear friend Rick oh God, I love him so much, oh, he's so troubled come on Rick, tell me your story and you just take it in, take it in, explode it into space in your doggy heart, told. it Till it's all gone, and people who who have practiced in in the Vajrayana tradition, Tibetan Buddhist tradition, will will recognize that this is an update of of a, a very Vajrayana approach.
0: Mm. Here's another one. I like this one. Would it help? <laughs> yeah,
1: um, and uh, there's a great um, Bridge of Spies, performance. right? Yes. Tom Hanks. great 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 performance by Mark Rylance, who actually won the Best Supporting Actor Oscar. Uh, 2015 film, Bridge of Spies, Steven Spielberg film. And Mark Rylance plays Rudolf Abel. the the true story of a Soviet spy who was captured by the Americans in New York City in the 1950s. And the good news is that Tom Hanks is his lawyer. So, you know, how bad can things get if Tom Hanks (laughs) is on your side? Um, And in their first jailhouse meeting, Tom Hanks says to him, now listen, you're, Tom's you're, meditating these days, by the way. Oh, but is he? Continue, yeah. Oh. Jerry Seinfeld turned him on to it. Oh, like, great, great, great to hear that. He deserves it. So he says to, to the spy, so listen, you know, you're very inconvenient to everyone. The Russians, the Americans, everyone wants you to go to the electric chair. So, And Rudolf Abel listens to that and says, all right. And Tom Hanks says, you don't seem worried. He says... Would it help? <laughs> right? And, I mean, boy, that, see, that's a, another one of these view mantras. If some people, you'll hear that and you'll realize all this worry that I do. It's like I, I give in, the, in that chapter uh, another way that it was said by Shanti David, the great sixth century Buddhist sage, who said, if there's a solution to the problem, what's the point of worrying? If there's no solution to the problem, what's the point of worrying? You know, And if you can see clearly, even once, the futility, not only, you know, a lot of people, they just, they're living uh, with this unexamined assumption that if you're not worrying, you're not being responsible. And if you can see clearly once that worrying is not productive, in fact, it's counterproductive, then uh, it's, you, you, it starts to loosen its grip on you. And again, this is that cart and horse conundrum where,
0: you know... Are you in a natural state in which you spontaneously don't worry, or are you inclined to worry, but you actually do something to sort of break the
1: the habit of of worrying? And it kind of works both ways, you know? Yeah, yeah. And again, again, you know, it's funny. I was actually having this conversation with Phil Goldberg, who who lives about six minutes from me, and we we take, you know, we'll both be in the middle of writing books, and we go take walk and talk on the beach together. And, and we were noting how, even though, you know, we, we're both years away from our old days of being involved with, with teaching TM and being involved with the TM organization, that so much of Marashi's wisdom, just we, we appreciate it more than ever. Um, and so one thing that Marashi said in this case was he said that it, it's, like a, it's like a table with four legs. You pull on any one leg and the other three come along. So you can pull. So it's not really a conundrum. It's a, it's a wonderful you know, ampleness of opportunity that you can find, improve the physiological or improve the the psychological view, improve something and, and the rest tends to go along. Yeah. All
0: right. Here's an interesting question. This is from Mark Peters in Santa Clara, California. Mark is a regular viewer. He always posts a question. He said, Can you point to a particular experience on your awakening journey that permanently and dramatically shifted your perspective or has it been more of an unending series of subtler aha moments? We were talking about that earlier, about the subtle versus the dramatic. And Samuel Bonder uses the frame "oozers." A lot of people are oozers. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or Muji says, you know, most people are on the the slow cook plan. Um, uh, I've had some dramatic experiences for sure. Uh, some of them were in in childhood. One of them. The most dramatic, the most fun one to talk about. I actually got to plug another one of my books. This, this book's actually out of print, but you can find copies online. Why the Chicken Crossed the Road mm-hmm. and Other Hidden Enlightenment Teachings. You finally answered that question, huh? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is chapter one of the of the book, which is What Me Worry. Mm-hmm. So, Alfred some, E. Newman. That's right. So here we go. True story. I'm 12 years old. And my mom sends me out to the garage because we're going to be going to a drive-in movie later that day, which dates me. And I go out to the garage, to the, to the Nash Rambler station wagon. Mm, Right. And my, and by the way, the, the movie we were going to see was Parish with Troy Donahue. So 1961. Um, so I go out to the garage and I'm, Picking up all the toys and the comic books, and my mind, even at that age of 12, my mind was just and all that branching. Well, what if that? And that, if that happens, that happens, that happens. And the next thing that I pick up is a mad magazine with Alfred E. Newman's idiotic grinning face on the cover, and underneath, as always, his slogan, What me worry? <laughs> and my mind went, and it was like, Whoa. It was like the top of my head opened up and the, and the sky fell into it or because it, oh, it, it, what and what happened was I saw that this thing that I was doing, this blah 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 blah, was is something called worry and that on some level I was I had been choosing to do that. I'd been flipping that lever over and over, and that therefore I could stop. I could and that really in a nutshell, that's the, the Buddha's four noble truths right there in that experience. Yes, suffering happens, but the suffering's not because of what's going on outside. It's because you keep pushing that button, all you gotta do is stop pushing it, and ah, that's the cessation of suffering. And the fourth noble truth, but then you know, you tend to fall back into the suffering, so it takes some practice over time for most people. Um so my mind just opened up, and it was just I was just completely it just like cut it with a knife, eat it with a spoon, such it, Ananda bliss, and we went to see this dumb movie, and the whole through the whole movie I'm just floating in bliss, we go home, I get in bed, fall asleep, floating in bliss, and years later, of course, I read about the you know that there are names. Of course, the names are not really what that thing is. That thing is what it is in its purity. It is what, what I experienced. So that gave me some, I won't say that, I, that it was irreversible and I never went back to worrying, but it gave me such a, and I think it's actually more useful from a teaching point of view, that that did not happen to me. That they say the worst person to study the violin with is the person who is the violin prodigy. The person who didn't have to, you know, you, you get the lesson, then you lose it. But a beautiful thing that uh, I heard Rupert Spira say on a retreat once—this really brought me to tears, actually. He said, "He said, getting the thing, getting the open, getting the bliss, getting the simplicity of, of of non-dual awakeness. He says, getting it is grace, losing it is grace, and the losing it is actually the greater grace because then you have to find your way back." Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, nice. So I hope you have a picture of Alfred E. Newman on your poodle. I've
1: got uh, – I have to – actually, not at the moment. I have had – I should. He's my root guru, as the the, the, the Buddhist would say, the one who first gave me the juice. Uh, We do have Hello Kitty. Okay.
0: Speaking of Muji, I know that you've – resonated with Muji and spent some time with him and all. He's a very sweet man. I've really enjoyed having a couple of conversations with him. Um, There's a a rather devotional scene around him now, which some people, makes some people a little nervous. Let's talk a little bit about devotion, not necessarily exclusively with reference to Muji, but in some traditions it's considered to be a sort of a more, a riper stage of realization than so-called mere self-realization that a blossoming of the heart that eventually happens because the heart is one of our faculties and it's bound to develop in time but I guess the reason it makes some people nervous is that it's gotten a little weird sometimes and it's been abused and and the, that sort of adulation has gone to the heads of teachers to whom it's directed they haven't been able to handle it maturely um, so I don't know Do you have any thoughts or, or comments about that whole topic
1: well, actually, let let me talk about the senior on Luigi a little bit because I as I have spent considerable time with him. I've, I've gone to I think I think I've been on retreats and with him in five different countries or something. And um, you know, I said at the outset of this, it, it, it seems like the story of my spiritual life is that every nest I get comfortable in, I wind up getting kicked out of. And and I must say when 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 my wife Yatha and I when we first met Muji and it was it was before he became so well known, so popular, we went on a retreat with him in in southern Italy in this little old beat up um, uh, villa that had become kind of a hippie artist commune or something and and there was only about fifty people there. And I think that besides us, there was maybe one other American. Most of the people were Italians, which was great because we were supposed to be in silence, but the Italians couldn't keep silence to save their lives. And they were smoking cigarettes everywhere and the food was great. And it was very, very intimate. But when we first came there, we, you know, first we, we flew down from Rome and then there was a train and then there was a bus going through this little village of Lecce and on the way there and it was this hot july day and there was a religious procession and the old italian widows in black and they're carrying the cross it was like being in a felini film uh it was just terrific and then we get to the villa with our suitcases and the the fellow who drove us there the italian fellow who was hosting us said uh and we were early the retreat hadn't started we were some of the first to arrive he said would you like to meet Luigi?" And he we said, well, sure, we've been seeing him online and never met him in the flesh before. And we go out to the veranda and he's sitting there on this little couch and we walk up to him and we sit down and I, I can, to save my life, I can't tell you what the conversation was. But all I know is I just sat down, I kind of put my hand on his knee, he put his hand on my hand and we just, you know, Time fell away, space fell away, cause and effect—the the idea of the ridiculous, laughable idea that I'm an entity stuck, zipped an ego zipped into this bag of skin—just everything fell away. And, and I really felt, this is it. I found, you know, at the end of that that retreat, I, I said to him, I, you know, in tears, I, I always knew there had to be someone like you. You know, it was, and. Um, And then he started making more videos, and I I would send them out. You know, I'd see these teachings, these five-minute videos. Wow, I'd send it out to everyone because, oh, everyone's got to see this. It's so simple and so powerful. And just his darshan, his, his presence just comes through the screen. And, you know, that was a very poignant experience for me. And then, as you say, there started to be this... Scene around him, this devotional scene, and everyone dressed in white and singing, you know, hymns to him. And I don't know if I'll ever go back there. I, I don't think I, it just it. it I'm, I, the thing is, I mean, I I could feel that devote that devotional thing swelling in my heart, but I don't want other people telling me. That I'm supposed that I'm supposed to feel that it's just when it's when it's and the other thing is that what I see is whatever role I have as a teacher, um. You know the Buddha shortly before he died, said to his disciples, "Go throughout the land and teach the Dharma, right? Teach the Awakening Path. Go throughout the land and teach the Dharma in the dialect of the people." Okay, my people are, you know. middle-class Americans, right? And the the dialect of my people is not wearing white robes and and singing hymns of adulation and and touching the group's feet. So I can't... And and he still puts out... He does these wonderful... His teaching is the same, as far as I can see. And it's still that same, but I can't send out the videos anymore because they start and end with these hymns that I know as, as... whatever responsibility i have as a teacher as a guide i can't be responsible for turning people off yeah
0: well he could put a lid on that sort of thing if he wanted to perhaps he feels that it's a legitimate expression of the people who have become yeah. his devotees uh, yeah, and I, I, wanna...
1: I, I don't know you know and again i can't say it's right or it's wrong but i know that it's not it's not it's not my thing yeah
0: I think it's natural. I mean, you see all kinds of, there's beautiful literature in, in the Vedic tradition, the Srimad Bhagavatam and the various bhakti sutras or whatever, the different things, and it's it really, and, you know, there's all these beautiful expressions about oh, the, the sort of devotion people would feel in the presence of Lord Krishna or their guru or whatever. So it, it has a legitimate thing. It's just um, it's a little alien to our culture, although I guess in in Catholic, Christian and particularly Catholic tradition. There's something along those lines, um, but it just—it's easy for it to go off the rails. I guess that's the thing that you're being—you're squeamish about here, and it—it it also clashes with, as you said, your your clientele, yeah. the people that you primarily interact with. So you know, it may have its place for those people. Yeah. You but know, I gave really... a talk the
1: other day. I was invited to give a talk at, at, at a local yacht club. Uh, uh and I I've given workshops for uh CEOs I've given workshops for lawyers I workshops for you know for medical groups and uh and some of these people have kind of a healthy american skepticism and 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 that's that's great uh, the you know the 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 dialect of the people is american I teach this stuff in american and I'll once in a while usually I'll throw in you know, a reference to the teachings of the Buddha or the Bhagavad Gita or the the Gospels, just so people know, I'm not making this stuff up. This stuff is road tested over thousands of years. It's been handed down through venerable traditions, but you don't have to sing mantras in Sanskrit to to get it. Now, I personally, I love singing mantras in Sanskrit. I, I do it every day. I sing them in the shower. But I just feel that my main responsibility is to have – to to make the gate as wide as possible and to, and to, to just remove the turnstiles. The That's what attracted me to becoming a TM teacher. You know, I never would have even started TM. I knew I was going to be a TM teacher before I started TM. I never would have started otherwise because I knew I wanted something that I could share with everyone. Oh, simple, natural – Innocent procedure, do for twenty minutes twice a day, right? You can still say those words in your sleep, and 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 it was great. And but then you know they made the the gate again. This was just my take. They made the gate too narrow. They made the turnstile too hard to to get through. So I had to go elsewhere, which was which for me was perfect. And the gate has gotten wider again since
0: Irene just scribbled a note here when I made that reference about. You know, devotional scenes going off the rails, and she said it's not like an intellectual teacher can can't go off the rails because you know that that can happen too. Where, yeah, but anyway, um,
1: but oh, but but back to the heart of your your question, um, which is the that the the cultivation, the development of devotion um, as a as a very uh, maybe a further ripening of of awakening. Um, you know, and Maharishi talked about that in terms of well, see, cosmic consciousness leads to God consciousness. Right. right? Um, appreciation becomes superlative or sublime, and and yes. then
0: then there's naturally a great upwelling of love and and even devotion.
1: Yes, and that's it right there. You you just use the keyword appreciation. That's really you know when I described before, looking up at the palm trees that loom yeah, above my Yeah, there you go. Just palm there. trees. yeah. No. yeah. There, <laughs> right. And and the thing is that. You know, I think that if you have, and especially a, a beautiful, charismatic, sweet teddy bear, you know, enlightened teddy bear of a teacher like Muji, it's so easy to feel devotion for him. Um, uh, uh, um, but then, you know, the moment it gets bound up with persons, the moment it gets bound up with personalities, and that that the, the, the feeling is that the devotion is specially for this person, specially for this teacher, for this thing, for this palm tree and not for this ficus tree over here, then it starts to be shaky. But it's a shortcut, and that's why it's tempting. I remember a line that Marshy said one
0: time about God. He said, well, wherever you find him, there he is found for the first time. But later on, he is found everywhere.
1: Right. Right, right, right. Yeah, so it can be useful. Okay, if I, if I can, you know, start off and I see, okay, here's this, here's this, here's this person. that. Uh, uh, I mean, that, and that actually, that teaching of Maharishi's, uh, I mentioned before, I used to teach Plato's Symposium in my Literature of Enlightenment class. And, and in, the, in that book, Socrates very systematically describes that as a path to enlightenment. You start by loving the beauty that you find in one person there or one and then from there you expand you find that that in many different people that same quality of beauty right it's something more abstract it's 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 not just that person it's some quality that's shared by these other peoples and then you start to find it in the arts and in institutions and so and eventually he describes where it's just this vision of of just the cosmic beauty of of the whole universe that is completely in and 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 you read it and you go Oh my God! It's, it's an exact description of, of enlightenment. It's just—it's a beauty that do, doesn't—it doesn't get bigger. It doesn't get smaller. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken away from it. It's completely independent of any, you know, material circumstances. And you go right on, Socrates. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So, movies. Uh, Yes. Um,
0: A a fellow named uh, Declan Cooley from uh, Krakow, Poland, sent in a question saying, "Uh, Hello, Dean. I enjoyed all your books, including Cinema Nirvana. In reference to the book, um, are there any more recent movies or the like that have caught your attention in a similar way?
1: Do you ever get into Breaking Bad? You know, I I haven't seen Breaking Bad is next on our list. Uh, uh, We're we're catching up. uh, We're in the middle of Deadwood right now, actually. Um, uh, It's pretty dark. You know, transparent. Talking about these TV, Netflix or HBO, whatever it was. Is that the one about um, with what's his name? Yeah, Uh yeah. The transgender, transgender parent. But it winds up going deeper and deeper into the lives and the consciousness. And there's a lot of exploring identity in terms of sexuality, not only for the transgender parent, but then each of the children. Well, you know, am I straight or am I gay? And and for a while, you might think that, gee, this, this thing is just about sex and sexuality. And really, there's more to identity than sexuality. And after a while, those characters start to, realize that they start getting deeper in, into themselves it's it, it's beautifully done um there's a new film that uh i actually have only just seen the trailer but my wife saw it and it, and my wife yatha is a film editor she works in documentaries and so we go to a lot of screenings of, of documentaries uh vim Venders has this uh new film about pope francis and even if you just watch the trailer at the last moment of the trailer he looks right into the camera and smiles, and you go, where well, there's the Darshan right there. <laughs> this, this guy's got some juice.
0: Yeah. Nice. I listened to some of your analyses of some of these movies, which one wouldn't think of as mm-hmm. spiritual, like The Godfather and Jaws and so on. And as I listened, I, I thought, all right. Well, you can yes. do that with anything. I mean, you can read as much, much as you want into anything. It wasn't necessarily the intention of Francis Ford Coppola or whoever or Steven Spielberg I, to and I, and have I say all that, that meaning in there. Dean is just using that as a vehicle for bringing out the point. And I in
1: the introduction to the book. I say I assume they did not intend that. You know, people say to me, oh, they always miss that part. I'm not saying that's what they intended. And if they did intend it, that would make this less significant. My point is that, just as you said, you can do it with anything because it's everywhere. Because if the Buddha nature really is what it's supposed to be, then it's got to be everywhere. And if we look at things slantwise just the right way, we can, we can find the, the Buddha in a pile of cow shit. Uh, we can, and, and But also, there is something more, which is, why do certain films and books persist as classics? You know, there's something in Casablanca. There's something in Jaws. There's something in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs that that keeps us coming back to them. There's something, for that matter, in Macbeth and Hamlet and and uh, 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 Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. And uh, uh, there's something that keeps us coming back. And and my sense is that it the the creators of those works. We're just kind of so in that zone that the juice came through them with somewhat more clarity than usual. And just like watching LeBron James, you know, rush the net in the same way we feel that we respond to it. It's like the one tuning fork vibrating in, in sympathetic resonance with another when when we we, we we respond to it for the same reason.
0: mm. Another thing I often think about with movies is that you know certain movies really uh, inject an awareness of of some something interesting or deeper into the national consciousness. Like you have a movie like Close Encounters of the Third mm-hmm. Kind that comes out, mm-hmm. or Star Wars, or these movies, and all of a sudden everybody's talking about you know intelligent life in the universe or or mm-hmm. the Force, you know this universal field of intelligence, and and you you kind of wonder whether the movie makers are just serving as conduits, perhaps even unwittingly for some higher wisdom to be Mm -hmm. disseminated, much as some scientists sometimes say that they just feel like they are a conduit or a vehicle for some knowledge that is ready to dawn. And and if they didn't discover it, someone else would have because it's time had come.
1: You know, there's that famous story about Einstein in his later years when he was teaching at Princeton and he in his general theory of relativity he had posited that uh if the theory was true one implication of the theory is that light waves had to be bent by gravity and so who was it that
0: sir arthur eddington went down to
1: africa to take the the photographs and the student comes rushing into einstein's classroom in princeton saying professor einstein your theory is has been confirmed and he was very blasé about it. And he said, "Aren't you excited?" He said, "No." If he, if if uh, Eddington had no, the student said, "What
0: would you have done if it hadn't been confirmed?" And Einstein said, "I would have been sorry for the dear right. Lord, The yeah. theory
1: is correct." Yeah. And he knew it. He knew it. He knew it because, as we were saying before, it's, it's less uh, thinking, more seeing. He could see it. He could feel it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's a cognition. Actually, speaking of movies, we watched a great one the other night called The Man Who Knew Infinity with uh, Dev Patel and Jeremy Irons. And it's a true story about an Indian mathematician who came from very humble village life in India who was to this day his his theories are being used mm-hmm. to understand black holes and all and, and he was just totally brilliant and uh, but he just said he his god just gave him all these things he how, they say how do you know this stuff we need to find right. proofs for it and, and he would he kept saying well i don't it's not my right. worry finding proofs i mean it, right. I, I just this stuff just comes that's to right. me and i, I express great. it that's great
1: you know and that's why um, you know, you can have the most brilliant film critic or literary literary critic, and they can't necessarily produce a great film or a great work of literature. They can understand it from from the outside. They can do brilliant commentary on it, and that's a book that I've got to write someday. I've, you know, I'm going do. I've actually written a couple of chapters about you know, here's the here's the Dharma teachings of Macbeth, for instance. But when Shakespeare was writing Macbeth, he was in the zone. Presumably, And and for that matter, he was in the requirements of Elizabethan theater. Hey, we need some exciting stuff here. We need to wake up the audience at the beginning. That let's have a, some thunder and lightning. Let's bring in some witches to get people excited. But within the form of that, the, you know, the juice came through. Yeah. Um, a couple more things I want to discuss with
0: you before we wrap it up. One is that you mentioned that towards the end of your book, there are some chapters which get into some pretty profound stuff. And I didn't get that far into your, Mm -hmm. I didn't finish the book, so I didn't read those chapters. So maybe we can talk about some of those things. But before we do, there was one thing I did read, which was about Bill Wilson, the founder of AA, and how, I guess, the the final step of the 12-step program was supposed to be some kind of spiritual awakening or spiritual cognition or something. And he was always looking for that. And he actually, you know, did psychedelics with Aldous Huxley. And he eventually, in the early 70s, learned meditation from a friend of yours, which is probably also a friend of mine. And uh, you want to tell that story a little bit? And then we'll segue into some of the stuff in the final
1: chapters of your book. And by the way, this is in a chapter of the book titled um, Twelve Steps, Two Thorns. And I've done a lot of work with addicts and and alcoholics. Uh, And there's a lot of meetings that happen here in la and a lot of people from those from those meetings uh those 12-step meetings have found their way to we have a tuesday night meditation here in our home in santa monica it's free it's open to everyone anyone in the la area get on the website and and come here and and, and come on tuesday night Actually, I tell the story in the book about one girl who came maybe about 20 years old, and she sat through the meditation. She came two weeks, three weeks, and and didn't say anything. And then one night, as she was about to leave, she pulled me over. And she said, I just wanted to tell you, I'm a heroin addict. I've been sober for six months. The meditation tonight was so deep and profound and blissful, I didn't think I could ever feel that way in this life without drugs, you know, and you hear something like that and you go, okay, I've not been, I've not been selling people a, an empty bill of goods. The stuff really does work, thank God. Uh, and it's, and and I really do believe that it is the, the lack of that, the lack of that, that, Coming home to that bliss which is inherent in our nature that makes people addicts. I think addicts are they're just like everyone else, but more so. I think addicts are born spiritual seekers. You know, they go okay. I get some happiness from driving the car. I get some happiness from where you know. But where's the bigger rush? Where's the bigger thing? And this is such a relevant point with yeah. the opioid
0: epidemic being what it is these days. It's like people are crying yeah, out for abso- what you
1: describing here and. And until that is supplied, whether it's by the David Lynch Foundation or, you know, everyone who can pitch in, you know, the people that I get to, uh, uh, you know, until people get that, it's, it's going to be just like shifting the, you know, the deck chairs around on the Titanic, you know. So Bill Wilson, the founder of AA, the, the one who first laid out the 12 steps in the 1930s, by the 1950s realized the, it's the 11th step. Where, which is, okay, through prayer and meditation, we had conscious contact with the higher power. So it's the 11th, everything else, the first ten was kind of cleaning, you know, clearing the path for the 11th step. You make amends to people that you've hurt you evaluate yourself, you do all of this. 11th step, conscious contact. By the 1950s, Bill Wilson realized that the 11th step wasn't really working people weren't really getting the juice they weren't making true conscious contact they were having some they were they were mood making you know they were trying they were having some nice sentiments saying some nice prayers but they weren't getting the stuff and he was he was you know uh, astute enough to realize that there had to be real stuff a way to really get the juice and he wound up with aldous huxley and some of the other early psychedelic pioneers Dropping acid with him, and he, apparently he got real excited. He ran back to the organization, and said, "Okay, we're going to modify the 11th step," <laughs> and apparently they went, "Whoa, slow down, fella! <laughs> you know that yeah, that's, that's that's not going. You know the old man's gone over the edge." So so that never happened. But then in 19, I think it was 1971, he was dying of emphysema as a result of of heavy smoking of by the way the 12-step drug of choice which is cigarettes and you know around here you can always tell where the meetings are happening because outside on the sidewalk people are smoking cigarettes which by the way in this country every year cigarettes kill 10 times as many people as opioids just saying okay oh and nicotine is is just as addictive probably you just can't overdose on a cigarette He's in his, his, his house in New England. It's a cold December day. He's a couple of weeks away from dying, actually. And he had some friends and relatives there. And they had an old friend of yours and mine, Lincoln Norton. And they had Lincoln, Lincoln over. Church. And he taught them all natural meditation in the form of TM. And the story is that Lincoln left Bill Wilson sitting in the upstairs bedroom meditating for 10 minutes, you know, the procedure. And then came back 10 minutes later, opened the door. The room was empty and he and Lincoln comes downstairs and says to everyone, has anyone seen Bill?" And just then Bill burst through the front door and what had happened was and here he was really just so weak and near death he opened his eyes out of the meditation, run down the back stairs, run out into the snow to breathe the crisp winter air, came in through the front door, burst through and said, "This stuff works!" So, you know, if if he that's had great. not already destroyed his body, if he lived beyond just a few more weeks, who knows what would have happened, whether uh, meditation would have come into the been incorporated, I mean, real effective meditation, not just the kind of, um, you know, lip service that's done, frankly, in most 12-step meetings, and for that matter, most martial arts places and a lot of churches, but, you know, just the real technology, the the profound Letting go, the profound effortlessness that really allows the sinking into bliss to take place. If if Bill had lived long enough to really bring that to the twelve step program, you know, things might have been different. So okay, now we're doing whatever this is, 30, 40 something years later. Now we're we're bringing that. Yeah, and as far as Bill is concerned,
0: the way I see things, that was a nice um, springboard for him, and I'm sure he's doing fine. And yeah, no, nice. Carried on from there.
1: Yeah, no. Nice that he. Nice that he. He got that. Uh, uh, Actually, you're talking now about the 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 more heavy chapters at the end of of my book. One chapter is called the Valley of the Shadow, which is about dying. And again since this is a book about fear, fear less. uh, That's a big one. That's a big one for a lot of people because you know, if you think you're this thing, if you think you're the wave. And then, uh-oh, my wave, this wave that I've identified with is melting, then that's catastrophe, that's annihilation. But if you've practiced, you know, if you're sitting down for your 20 minutes twice a day or 10 minutes once a day or 30 seconds while you're sitting at the red light, just anything, if you're just getting some practice of okay, melting down into yourself and discovering, wait, I'm not wave, I'm ocean, then when death happens... Oh yeah, okay. I've I've done this fire drill. I've I've done this book. This this feels familiar. It's the same kind of melting. Mm-hmm. You probably quote in
0: this book that verse from the Gita that even a little of this Dharma removes great yes. fear. Yes.
1: Yes. Yeah. That's that's in chapter one, <laughs> right? Yeah. Even a little bit. And this is why you know I just you know so I throw out all of these little things. Okay, breathe through your feet. Relax at the moment of contact. Say, Wee! what You know, something to start to let some, some daylight in. And, and then go from yeah. there.
0: Yeah. What are some of the other heavy-duty <laughs> things that you get into towards the end of
1: the book? Well, I have a chapter which um, actually some people have told me is the most useful thing I've written. Um, and the chapter is called Lord Shiva Kicks Ass." Okay, and of course, as you know, Lord Shiva is the Lord of destruction, or I prefer to say dissolution. That's a little gentler. Everything that you have, everything that you've identified with as important, is going to go away. Your favorite shirt is going to be a dust rag. You know, you're having a good hair day today, you're going to be bald tomorrow, guaranteed right? Everyone you know, everyone you love is going to die, right? All the, you know, all, all, all this, 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 this offer is good for a limited time only, you know, whatever it is. Five billion years from now, the whole planet's going to melt because the yeah. sun's going to expand and yeah, absorb yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so where this really comes into play in our own lives is something that something or someone who's very precious to us uh vanishes and the story that i tell is about the death of my first wife maggie and you know maggie was this just wonderful buoyant funny you know her her idol was lucille ball uh but maggie was also she was a former fashion model and very beautiful and she was uh she was a, a kind of a junior teacher in the buddhist organization that we were connected with at the time and um you know, her death was an incredible teaching for me. Um, one thing that happened uh, as she was she was dying, um, she you know, a few weeks before she died, and, you know, I'm dealing with all the you know, incredible physical indignities. She was dying of colon cancer, and, you know, it, it, it's, a lot of it's not pretty. And she said to me at one point, you know, how do people who don't meditate deal with this stuff you know and i just i don't know i don't know and at another point a friend of ours from this buddhist organization we were connected with called called her up he was very excited listen i made arrangement i can get some tibetan monks to come to your hospital room and chant you know the the bardo thought all and blah 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 and and she said oh gee really thanks so much but you know what that's not been a part of my practice during my life, it would not be authentic for me to do that now," she said. "My practice is just being without hope or fear." <sighs> right, right, because everyone wants to be without fear. I mean, that's why I wrote the book, "Fearless." Every but you know, no one wants to be without hope. But hope and fear are they are flip sides of one another. You know, hope is this investing your happiness in a particular outcome right i hope if this thing happens then everything will be okay fear is the is this the flip side It's the same investment well if i don't get that outcome then life is not satisfactory right but what if we can just be right in in this moment which is all we have just be in awareness which is all we have and realize that hope and fear are not yeah, but just thoughts with just thoughts and let those thoughts go like anything else there's profound liberation in that and then, and then the the other piece of it for me oh
0: but just on hope and fear neither one actually pertains to right. the present you know they they all pertain to right. a right. And, hypothetical yeah, future and, and which not only we have, yeah, no, we have control no control over but
1: which, which never arrives you know the, the future lies ahead and always will you know, the future is this thing we call the future is like the, the carrot dangling in front of the donkey, which we keep, but the donkey never catches up to the carrot. And the past, by the way, are all the tin cans tied to the, the donkey's tail. Right. And if you can just, OK, whatever, carrot, whatever, can't tin cans, whatever, just rest. OK, I'm the donkey. Here I am. Then, then, then we're getting somewhere. Now, the other thing I talk about is, is after Maggie died and, you know, that was very hard for me. You know, what really hit me was going to the A and P and buying groceries for one. And uh, um, but after a while, I started to notice. You know, there's a famous story about uh, a samurai poet named Masahide in, in medieval Japan, and he became very wealthy, and he had all his possessions. Uh, in a storage barn. Of course, this was before the days of insurance and the, the barn burned. He lost all his wealth. And his response was to write a haiku which said, Barns burnt down. Now I can see the moon. So the time of loss is also, if we pay attention, if we pay attention, the time of loss can also be a time of of seeing, a time of of liberation. And that's why Lord Shiva is the lord of, traditionally the lord of destruction, but also the lord of enlightenment.
0: And is often associated with pure silence, you know, transcendence, and so on, which is kind of what you're aiming to have people experience through natural meditation. Yeah. So basically you're you're sneaking Shiva in the Sheva, back door. She was the last
1: one out of the building. Yeah.
0: So if people go to your website, I understand that they yes. can actually kind of learn to meditate there. Um talk, talk a little bit about that what they can find on your website.
1: Okay. So on my website in addition to my touring schedule and people are watching this live, I'm going to be soon in Louisville, Cincinnati. Uh, Chattanooga uh, Big Sur a couple things back here in LA so I'm, I'm
0: all over the map oh and I just want to mention that we have a page on BatGap which we'll be sending you information about where if people type in their zip code or their city or whatever it shows them in radiating outward from that location any events um, offered by anybody I've interviewed who has put in the, the necessary information so if they are in oh. Louisville or whatever they, and they put in you know, there's Louisville zip code. They would see your event coming up. Oh, that's up. great. That's it's, great. It's, uh, it's under the
1: resources menu on BatGap. Can I just say, Rick, BatGap, thank you. What a great thing this is. And everyone watching this, if you're watching this, you like this, send these guys some money. Do the right <laughs> thing. Come on. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, so on my website, uh, which they can get to, uh, FearlessBook.net. Peterlessbook.net or DeanWords.com, with however you're putting it and on. And
0: DeanWords actually redirects to DeanSlider.com. Yes, exactly. But no yeah. one can spell yeah.
1: slider because it's Dr. Right. Okay. And I'll link to all this from right. my, your page on Bath Gap. Also. Good, good, good. So if you're watching this, you're on Bath Gap, you can get to my site. So on my site, I've got one page called Meditate Now where I have guided meditation audio tracks. So it's me you know just gently pulling the rugs out from under your effort so that you can just slip naturally into this you know letting go of doing and just being which is natural meditation
0: can you even download an mp3 yeah, or whatever you to put on you your can. phone or your iPod yes you can or something?
1: you can stream the stuff for free or for a few bucks i think it's seven bucks or something you can you can ad- download the, the mp3 into your phone
0: great Alrighty. so um yeah so I'll be linking to your website and people can go there and you probably have some kind of email list that yes. people can sign up for to be notified right. of things and, and yep. all that and um, great well it's great connecting with you really again great, Dean after all really, these really, years really
1: wonderful yeah and, and and really thanks for doing what you do it's just you know no one else does this in, in the way that you do and it's it, it's it's really just terrific
0: well I could say the same to you um, you know we're all doing what we can and uh, doing what kind of we feel naturally right. moved to do. And I, I don't think I could do what right. you're doing, but but yeah. I can do this. Yeah, yeah,
1: I yeah. said, <laughs> you know, I I, I I said to my wife the other day, you know, it's a good thing I can write and I can talk, because that's it. That's my skill set. After that, beyond that, I'm completely useless. I'm out of the gene pool. You know. Yeah. And it's nice to be doing something,
0: you know, that you f- feel can really help people, and, and as you certainly are. And as, as we, as Batcap seems to do, from the feedback we get, it's, it's very gratifying. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, you get up in the morning, you've got to do something, so you may as well liberate yeah. sentient beings from suffering. Right, and yourself in the process. <laughs> yes, yes. And you know, and that's one final thing that Maharishi always used to say to us, which is, the teacher always benefits more than the speaking. Yeah, it's true. You know, just to
0: belabor this point a little bit more, don't you have the feeling that, you know, once you sort of get on this bandwagon of doing something which appears to be evolutionary and conducive to people's enlightenment and upliftment and alleviation from suffering, it's like you start getting the wind at your back. I mean, you start getting this sort of support and opportunity, and, and, you know, it's like it's as if the the powers that be say, uh, hey, boys, we've got a live one here. Let's give them some juice, you know?
1: yeah it, it it seems to be you know uh, it's it, it, the you know the universe is made out of Buddha nature, the universe is made out of Sachi and it it in a sense uh, and, and then anthropomorphize a little bit, it wants to realize itself and and we can see all the working the whole cosmic creation, the whole okay now we're going to have these solar systems we're going to have all of that is i think it's just all beingness trying to fully realize beingness it's trying to wake wake up to itself and so i do think that when something or someone comes along who for a while in some way in some region of the creation is helping to facilitate that then there tends to be some some confluence of of support for that yeah it's like there's a cosmic purpose and you're
0: helping to serve it yeah And it's it's much bigger than you are, so it's not like you're kind of like making it happen, but you're you're just kind of cooperating with it as you, like you know that old story of of the people holding up their sticks to help Krishna hold up the mountain, you know, keep the rain (laughs) off. Krishna's really doing the work, but uh, yeah, (laughs) but they they feel
1: like they're Uh, helping. (laughs) Holding up my little stick,
0: right? Yeah. 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 Okay. So. Great. So um, thanks for this and, and thanks to those who've been listening or watching and to those who sent in questions and for those who've been supporting BatGap and for those who haven't been but have been enjoying it, thanks to you all. Um, this is part of an ongoing series and if you go to batgap.com, um, you'll see several things that might interest you. Um, you can sign up for an audio podcast of the whole thing or you can sign up to be notified by email when new episodes are released. Um, it'd be good if you subscribe to the YouTube channel if if you feel like it, because having more subscribers on YouTube uh, helps the whole channel. It give, makes YouTube makes it easier for me to talk to YouTube representatives if I have a problem, and it just helps the whole thing. So do that if you f- feel like it. Hit the subscribe button. All that means is YouTube's going to notify you when I put up something new, and. If you're listening to this on some podcast thing like iTunes or Stitcher, if you leave a review of it on those platforms, that helps also. It makes that podcast the podcast more, more prominent. So those are some things you can do to support it if you feel supportive. So thanks for listening and watching, and stay tuned for the next one. Thanks, Dean.